Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. I have a question for you. Well, actually, no, let me say this. If you've been listening to the program for the past, let's say, 45 minutes or so, you will have, in all likelihood, you will have heard more of the DNC convention uh, than most Americans. I played a number of clips. Uh, we rehashed some of the some of the views shared, some of the the speechifying that went on uh, from various locations uh, across the country last night, as in video form. The Democrats presented their uh, their national convention. Now, what I'm saying is, if you were listening, if you and I were hanging out here for the past 45 minutes or so, uh, you will likely have heard more of that event than most Americans. I don't know that objectively. I don't yet have uh, ratings from last night, but uh, my guess, uh, and I, I'm pretty good at guessing stuff, my guess is that uh, the, the ratings, the turnout for uh, what transpired last night, uh, not, not that high. In fact, uh, I bet if you ask many Americans, they wouldn't even know that this convention was, uh, was taking place. And that says uh, two things. Number one, uh, the convention and this year's convention uh, not marketed that well. <laughs> uh, but also, it also begs the question of the, the, the meaningfulness of the event and the necessity and the need. Do we, do we need to have these conventions? Must they happen? I have lamented, I have lamented this year the fact that due to the coronavirus, uh, I, I am not able to attend. Uh, the, the, the plan was, before the coronavirus showed up, uh, that uh, producer Amy and I and a, and a team, we were going to travel to uh, both conventions of, of the major parties. We were going to uh, be uh, there uh, right this week. We we're going to be spending the week uh, hearing from the speakers, uh, seeing how the convention and all involved uh, touch on Utah, what, what the impact here locally is, and then the plan was uh, to pack up and, and travel with the, the Republicans to their uh, national convention. And I was very much looking forward to that. But with that said, I am not 100% sure uh, that there is much value anymore in the conventions. I think uh, that that's been happening for, for some time. There really uh, has been no uh, lingering questions left to be answered in the uh, run-up to conventions in recent years. Uh, we haven't had uh, one of those brokered conventions in uh, some time. In fact, uh, according to uh, Scott Rasmussen, you hear him occasionally on Inside Sources with 
Boyd Matheson. He's also a contributor uh, for the Deseret News, and he talks about uh, his own views on this question as to whether or not the the conventions uh, really matter anymore. And uh, interestingly, in his op-ed, he said that the last meaningful convention moment was 40 years ago. In in 1980, Senator Ted Kennedy Uh, was challenging incumbent President Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination. Carter had won enough delegates to secure the nomination, but Kennedy was convinced that in their hearts, uh, most delegates preferred him. So uh, his team challenged the convention rules and called for a vote uh, that would free all the delegates to vote their conscience. Now, we all know how it uh, turned out, so this next clip isn't a spoiler. Here, uh, from that 1980 convention, is an excerpt from Senator Ted Kennedy's concession speech uh, during the Democratic National Convention. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. And just because we thought it was interesting, uh, that same year at the Republican National Convention, uh, there was a CBS News correspondent, Leslie Stahl. uh, She uh, was giving a report. Uh, Walter Cronkite uh, tossed it to her, and she delivered uh, some remarks on Reagan's VP pick, uh, George Bush, talking about the excitement uh, that, that, that was surrounding this decision. Leslie Stahl has made uh, has more on why this demonstration is being prolonged. Uh, uh, Leslie? Oh, Walter, I am just being told by a high lieutenant that the choice is Bush. I am being told that the choice is Bush. He's telling me I can go with it. Uh, I'm being told for sure. Apparently the deal fell through. A couple of senators were just called off the floor into the trailer, and somebody came running out, came running up to me, one of the top lieutenants from the trailer. He said that Reagan is here to tell the convention it's Bush. I'm sorry I can't get to a second person to get it confirmed, but they just came running over to me, shouted at me, said, go with it, it's absolutely true. Leslie Stahl, that's the most amazing piece of news we've heard since we heard it was Ford. <laughs> so, as Scott Rasmussen says, uh, that year, 1980, uh, maybe the last meaningful uh, convention moment. And by meaningful, what does he mean? <clears throat> we, we don't learn much in conventions anymore. There are moments that uh, capture our attention, maybe. There are, uh, every once in a while, there are speeches that we remember. But, but, but close your eyes and think back. What was the last big moment that you can remember? I remember the I remember the chair thing uh, with Clint Eastwood in, in 2012. That was interesting. Um, uh, of course, uh, Mia Love uh, gave a speech, uh, and and we remember that here as Utahns. Uh, but but beyond that, it is really <clears throat> a very expensive, drawn out exercise uh, in pyrotechnics and vanity. And I I bet I bet that next uh, election cycle, next presidential election cycle, that there uh, is uh, uh, a pretty serious uh, look taken at the way conventions have been hosted in the past. There are, there are certainly, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the nomination must happen, uh, and that must happen in a very formal and laid out way, uh, but this year we found out that, you know, we can kind of work around doing that in a big convention hall. Uh, what do you think? Five seven five zero zero. First off, are they necessary? And second, do you tune in? 
for political junkie types uh, like me, we like going. We like seeing our friends. We like touching base with people we haven't seen in four years. We like the excitement of all the cameras and the lights and the, the big, powerful political people as they get up and deliver their remarks. Uh, there are often uh, cool concerts and events and dinners uh, that are happening all in the periphery. So the environment itself is fun. James Taylor performed, I remember, years ago, and that was exciting. Uh, Blues Traveler, a band from, uh, from my youth, uh, performed in 2016 in Cleveland. I was there for that, very much enjoyed it. But as I looked around and as I think back on it and as I look at what's happening uh, this year, I'm not sure what within any of that is necessary. I may be wrong. You want to set me straight? The text line is 57500. I'm not wrong, though. Come on. What are we, what are we doing with conventions? 57500, Utah Community Credit Union text line. Quick break. When we return, We'll be speaking with the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, Jeffrey Tucker. He asked the question, what will not recover after this pandemic? Unfortunately, the answer he gives is the government. We'll get his rationale next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back. You and I on this program for the past number of months now uh, have long speculated uh, as to what life may be like after the coronavirus, we talk about some some superficial things uh, about handshakes, right? Are, are we ever going to be uh, handshaking people again? Uh, I'll tell you what, every once in a while, I do find myself in some sort of either social or professional setting uh, where I forget that we're not like handshaking these days and uh, I extend a hand, uh, a hand extended to me, and I shake a hand. And it is, it's such, uh, it's such a Good experience. There's a little bit of fear there. You know, you know that as soon as you make contact, both of you, there, there's that look where it's like, oh, my gosh, we, we, we don't do that anymore. Uh, but uh, it is a good reminder of things that were. Uh, you, you wonder about the economy, how that will be. You wonder about the nature of the workplace. I still broadcasting here from uh, my own guest bedroom, the office here at home. Uh, I, I wonder when and if that'll change. Uh, you may be in a, a similar circumstance. Uh, the, the, the housing market is all uh, upside down these days, uh, all of it responding to this coronavirus. What will life be like afterwards? Uh, movies, uh, concerts, uh, state fairs, it's all uh, uncertain right now. And it may be changed uh, forever. And those are all relatively superficial responses to this uh, big question of what will not recover. Uh, there's a fairly uh, profound answer to that question, at least according to a gentleman named Jeffrey Tucker uh, with the American Institute for Economic Research. He joins me on the line now. Uh, Mr. Tucker, thank you for your time and, and thanks for joining me. Oh, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. If you were here, I would shake your hand. Th thank you, thank you. I would too. Maybe a little hand sanitizer <laughs> afterwards, but uh, but it's it's good to, it's good I think to have uh, a little bit of contact from time to time, and uh, and the the newfound risk associated is is all the all the more thrilling. Uh, you you answer you answer the, this question: What will not recover? You assert that it's the government. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, I think that the government responses have been completely chaotic and random, and, <laughs> and uh, all the while very seriously. Uh, you know, advise our public health authorities act as if they know exactly what they're doing. But we're discovering that they don't know what they're doing. P people lock down too soon. They lock down too late. They lock down in weird ways. And, 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 and the mandates, you know, I'm not, I think Utah is a lot more liberal than 
than uh, Massachusetts, but it's just silly, you know, the, 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 the irrationality of the mandates is so silly. And, and like, oh, can, for a while, you could, people wouldn't, weren't allowed to go outside because they inside, and now we're not allowed to go inside, we have to stay outside. So, you know, the whole thing is a little bit nutty, and it's discrediting public health authority. And this is precisely what the great epidemiologist Donald Henderson predicted in 2006 when he argued against quarantines and closures. And I said, you do this, he said, and public health authority will be discredited for a generation. And I think that's precisely what's happening. You think uh, we will now look at those involved in, in public health and we will question their, their guidance. We will forever question uh, the, the advice that they give us. I, I, have, I have hope that it doesn't go that far. I had hoped, and, and, I, and I base this hope uh, on some events of the past where uh, we as uh, Americans, as humans, uh, we have a relatively short memory. We can get over things. Uh, you think this has yeah. gone on too long to forget? Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, I mean we, what we've had is public health authority and, and governors around the country spreading this kind of uh, mitophobic brainwashing uh, for, for months and having this hop around like, <clears throat> like rabbits doing these silly things and our economy has been destroyed. And people are going to gradually wake up from this and say, what the heck happened? And there's something else slightly wrong. And here's what I think is, is, is it is. I have yet to hear a single politician or public health official in this country admit that they that he or she did something wrong or made some misjudgment i maybe i i've looked very hard i haven't found it yet the the surgeon general the the surgeon general did walk back his mask attitude if you remember uh, making good rounds on social media was the surgeon general uh in march talking about masks and how they were unnecessary and may even hurt and they should be reserved for uh you know frontline healthcare workers and he he did address uh, he did address his shifting attitude there but uh beyond that uh, i am with you i'd be hard pressed to find uh, anyone either a healthcare official uh, a member of government a- anyone who's calling the shots quote unquote these days uh, walking back any past decisions or uh, in, right. a, in a real sense in a real sense uh, explaining the uh, the discrepancy between uh, this region and that region in, in terms of their approaches yeah that's right every state had different approaches you know I mean there are some places Utah didn't really ever have same stay home orders and you can look and see uh, that um, that coronavirus began to arrive sometime in, in May it peaked uh, middle of June and now Herd immunity looks like a pattern of pure herd immunity is going away. And um, death is always very kind of low and stable, uh, one of the lowest per million in, in the country, actually. But uh, other places, like Massachusetts, you know, practically we shut down the entire state. Uh, um, and, and, and we did it after cases had already peaked. Where you look at a place like South Dakota, they never did anything at all. And they have exactly the same pattern of the virus comes, the virus goes, and that's it. So I guess my point is that every one of these governors in all 50 states can't have been correct. You know, I mean, somebody had to be more correct than somebody else, but nobody's admitting to any kind of errors. And we've not seen any investigations uh, in seriously considering uh, these questions. Why do the states that stayed open have... Uh, far lower deaths per million than those that shut down, for example. That's a really interesting question, you know? Yeah. So, and, and we just are not seeing any, what you might call, like, humility on the part of these governors. Uh, 
or for that matter, at the, at the level of the president either, you know. To hear his story, he did everything perfectly. You know, he shut down the national flights at the right time. Uh, he shut down the economy at the right time. The CDC never made any mistakes of testing. Everybody's perfect. Or Governor Cuomo, who the majority of deaths in his state were in nursing homes, that he filled up with COVID patients and mandated that the long-term care facilities accept them. He has not apologized. So this is what I think what happens. I mean, did you ever have a friend who just was always right about everything and never once said, I'm sorry about anything, even when it was obvious to everybody around that the person was egregiously wrong? What happens to that person? People stop believing, you know? They mm. stop believing the person who imagines himself to be infallible and never apologizes for anything, even when clearly a lot of things have gone wrong. And this country did a lot of things wrong, but nobody's apologizing for it. I think what that does is it spreads a kind of incredulity on the part of people. I mean, I think after all this is over, uh, we're going to see a, a, a an attitude toward governments really start to turn, turn really negative. Um, after all, we've lost something like annualized basis, a third of our GDP, and we have to believe it was for good reason. And if we gradually come to discover it wasn't for a good reason at all, it was just people randomly doing things, that's not going to be good for government credibility in the future. And already was at historic lows. Only 17% of the American public believe that government, uh, trusted government to do the right thing. This is before COVID. This is contrasted like in the 60s, people, uh, in the 50s, it was closer to 70% uh, yeah. of people trusted government to do the right thing. What's going to happen in six months when that poll is retaken after COVID, after all these disasters and the, stay-home orders and all the irrational policies and everything, I think it's going to hit rock bottom, and it's going to have some profound uh, effects on American life in the future. I just seriously doubt that a majority of Americans are really going to ever trust our governing officials anymore. Jeffrey Tucker, got to leave it at that with the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your writing. It's a fascinating question, and, and your answer to it, uh, it certainly uh, brings up a, a lot of thoughts and a lot of fears, if I'm honest. Hopefully, uh, we'll be smart enough to overcome uh, any, of the, uh, any of the negativity that might come as a result of this lack of trust. Thanks again right. for your time. Best of luck to you, all right? Oh. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think about this question here? Uh, will our trust in government, and this is this is regardless of political party, right? Because the governor's reference there by uh, by the gentleman uh, come from both parties. Will there be a grand deterioration in the trust and confidence that we have in government? So far, so much so. Uh, that we hit some sort of rock bottom. I want to hear from you. Get on the phone, 801-575-8255. Has your confidence in government been fundamentally changed due to the coronavirus? 801-575-TALK. It's you and me shooting the breeze next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. It's been heavy topics today, huh? Uh, we've been talking about some of the frustrations that I felt uh, after the DNC convention of last night, night one, uh, one quarter of the way through tonight, uh, they'll be back at it. Same story for Wednesday and Thursday, ultimately, uh, when Joe Biden officially accepts the nomination of his party uh, to run against uh, the Republican for the presidency in November. We talked about uh, some of the 
some of the themes that were present and some of the themes that were absent. Uh, the ones that I saw uh, most present uh, in all the shortcomings uh, of Donald Trump and what was absent uh, were the merits uh, of Joe Biden. Uh, a little disappointed uh, not to have seen that. There were exceptions, though, of course. I mentioned Bernie Sanders and John Kasich did a fine job uh, talking about and promoting their candidate. Now, regardless of your politics, uh, I, I tend to lean towards that approach uh, to campaigning being the, uh, the uh, productive one uh, and the effective one. And that uh, led us down uh, a rabbit hole of sorts looking at uh, our faith in government. One of the big themes of last night was uh, the response to the coronavirus. The, the Democrats certainly focusing on the shortcomings of the Trump administration and Republicans. Uh, but the, the, the problem is, uh, if, there, if there is one there, it's widespread and it is not a respecter of political party. Uh, just before the newscast there, we had a conversation with a gentleman named Jeffrey Tucker. He's the editorial director for the American Institute of Economic Research. Uh, and he asked a question in an essay, and it is simply, what will not recover following the coronavirus? What will not recover? You and I have speculated about uh, various industries uh, or habits that we have engaged in as a people, work styles, uh, various elements of the economy, the housing market that'll all likely recover or at least return to some uh, some semblance of the way we used to experience those parts of life. But Mr. Tucker, he asserts and gives evidence and makes a pretty strong argument for how one element that, uh, that will not recover uh, is government and specifically our perception of government's credibility. I'll get into some of the rationale presented in just a moment, but uh, we on Twitter, uh, the KSL News Radio Twitter handle, asked a very basic question. Has your level of trust in the government changed because of its response to the pandemic? Again, the question, has your level of trust in the government changed because of its response to the pandemic? About 66% of people right now are saying yes. 34 saying no. I'd like to know what you have to say. So I'm going to give you the phone number. You pick up the phone. You give me a call. You and I will have a conversation about this. Has your confidence in government been fundamentally changed due to this coronavirus? 801-575-8255. First caller, Norma from Ogden. Uh, Norma, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, tell me, has, has your attitude towards government or your confidence in government changed uh, these days? No. No, not a bit. We have to remember, government is people. We're the ones that elect our government. It is a government by the people, for the people and of the people, and we cannot forget that. If it's not doing well, we need to look to ourselves. We need to be involved in the political process. Instead of just running everybody down, find the people that are good and that are productive and Support those people and just quit griping and complaining all the time. Do something about it. I like that, Norma. That's a strong and wonderful attitude. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Norma, are there any examples of, of individuals in government right now you look to as, as good, positive examples that we ought to follow? Well, actually, I, I am a Republican, and I do believe that if we had not had the pandemic, I, I did think that President Trump did many things, took many actions that needed to be taken. Uh, there's a lot about his personal way of doing things that has been annoying to me. But I have to look at the overall result 
of what happened and that we've never had a pandemic. How, how do we know how any, any uh, president or government of official would have handled it? Uh, we managed to get through World War II while winning that war, and that was several years, and this has only been a few months. Uh, you know, everybody needs to work together and do the things that we need to do to bring our, our government. We're responsible for how our government is. So I just feel like people are abdicating their responsibility in a lot of ways. And so I like your, I like your program and I like your most of the things you say. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Norma. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I, I very much appreciate that attitude. And it is right. It, it is, we are abdicating our responsibility in, in a certain sense. Uh, if we do point our finger at government and either look to them for absolute guidance or uh, direct towards them absolute blame, uh, we are in the wrong. Uh, just like Norma said there, we do bear uh, a measure of responsibility ourselves. And that if we don't like what's happening either uh, in Utah's Capitol Hill or in Washington or wherever our representation resides, uh, you know, it's up to us either to seek someone out or to stand up uh, and try to fill that office ourselves. Uh, next call comes from Karen in Kaysville. Karen, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. You guys it, just said exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> well, well, let's hear it again. Let's hear it through, through, through your mind. Okay, I was going to say that I don't believe that we can blame keep blaming each other and the government and this person and that person for everything that is going on with COVID because, you know, they didn't take classes on the COVID pandemic to know exactly what to do immediately. And I personally feel that the government should not be held responsible for everything. I think it does go back to the individual. How many individuals are getting together and doing what the government or what the doctors are saying that we should do. I don't know that masks are going to cure everything, but why not do it and try it and see if it does while we're waiting for a, for a vaccine to come? I just, I just get sick, so sick and tired of hearing everybody call each other names and, and blame everybody for everything that's going on, and yet maybe they themselves are not taking the advice and trying to follow the instructions. That's just the way I feel about it. Well, Karen, I'm grateful to you for your call. Thank you so much uh, for that. And you bring up a, a good point there uh, in that uh, we, do, we do sit around and do a lot of name-calling, and we might uh, be better served taking a little bit of personal responsibility. Uh, but I, I do understand, I do understand the, the frustrations that we're feeling. Just as we have never faced, most of us, uh, have never faced a, a pandemic before, and many of the, many of the, the people in government... They've never had to craft policy on the fly in response uh, to to a pandemic, uh, nor have we ever experienced the uh, really the, the the anxieties that creep into our everyday life. These are new frustrations that we're feeling, and maybe some of this name calling comes as a result uh, of of us just trying to uh, emote and to get some of these frustrating emotions out of us. And when we sit back. Uh, and really break down our thoughts, as it was done here by Norma and Karen, these two wonderful callers, uh, we will find that it is all rooted in personal responsibility and that we should uh, sit back and take stock of what we are doing uh, to keep ourselves and our community safe. One of the things pointed out 
by Jeffrey Tucker there, the gentleman writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, he pointed out that here in Utah, he reminded me of this fact and f that, that we are different here, that our experience has been dramatically different and that has, for the most part, been spearheaded by uh, Governor Gary Herbert. Agree with him or not, uh, what he has championed from the very beginning is personal responsibility. It is the personal responsibility uh, that you and I bear which has led us to the circumstance in which we find ourselves today. Maybe you think uh, there have been missteps, or maybe you think that that freedom has been placed exactly and left alone exactly the way it ought to be. The statistics uh, seem to favor uh, liberty. The statistics seem to favor personal responsibility, the same responsibility that you and I bear. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to uh, turn back the clock a little bit, and we're going to look at something that happened at a nightclub here in Utah late Saturday night. It's one of those stories where a good guy with a gun saved the day. I'll share with you that story and my thoughts next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.